Do you want to roll the intro? You do. do you do that. I did. The, I've done the intro the last four weeks. You should do That's it. Fine. I don't want to. I don't want to make I'm, a routine. I'm, I'm, no, I'm fine. I'm fine with you doing it. <sighs> Unless you just don't want to. No, no, it's fine. I just, I, this, I always end up doing this, and I fucking hate it. But it's, I can, fine. I can. I, got I it. mean, I can do it. Okay, you can do it. You do it. Oh man, <laughs> see, now you're thinking about it. You're I in your head. This, <laughs> Maybe this is the real me. intro. Maybe this is the real pre-end. Hmm. You, you'd think I would have some practice introing a podcast, and it, it turns really out though we, like I, I did one that's by accident. One evolved over time. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was just, hello, here's the show. I'm the people. And here's the other people. That's so formal. I know. Okay. Hey, hang on. It's coming to me. You got it. I think okay. I can do this. Okay. Remember, you have to do this thousands of times. So don't fuck it up. Hey, Will, it's the fifth episode of our tech pod. Whoa, the fifth episode? I thought last week was the fifth episode. Nope, nope. We established that zeros are not numbers. <sighs> I'm pretty sure zero is a number, but welcome. Hey, everybody, I'm Will. <laughs> I'm Brad. Hello. This um, is our tech podcast. Brad, have you have you ever wanted to know the future? Uh, <laughs> kind of, and also not at all. Look, there's a, there like... In the 80s, did you want to know the future? Yes. Okay, yes. There was definitely a time 20 to 25 years ago when the future seemed like it might be cool. In the early 2000s, did you want to know the future? Um, as Let's say as time went along, it became less appealing. Do you know why Tim Cook is the president of Apple? Yes, because he. Uh, people talk about him like a supply chain wizard. He is he was, a supply he was the chain. Guy, because he was the guy who got the products made quickly. That's ex- because the, the reason he's a, he is the CEO... Because the supply chain is the most important part of the whole thing. All the design crap, that's what gets the people on stages excited. But if you want to know why we have iPhones, supply chain is the thing that's important. It's Tim Cook. Tim Cook's the man. So supply chain. That's the topic. Is when you start thinking about how you make something instead of like going to the hardware store and getting the parts you need and jamming it together. Like if you put a flapper in your toilet, you know, you go to the store, you get the kit, whatever. Right. Or even if you're making like a cabinet, you build it like you might even get like raw lumber or raw wood of some type and like design and build it yourself. Nobody is making their own homemade bespoke iPhone. What's the well, I mean, I'm sure somebody is, but it's a bad idea. You shouldn't try (laughs) to do that. What's the worldwide capacity for manufacture of cabinets, though? How many cabinets can the whole world make? All the cabinet makers. What are the variables in the equation? Like like manpower, materials, uh, time, I guess that's... Facilities, probably. Okay, space. Like you yeah. have to have the right kind of shop to build cabinets, right? You Tool, have to have tables tables availability. And, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Apple, over the last 20 years, did a really good job with this. Like they figured, they sussed this out really early. And you can tell, if, like looking back, it's really clear. Like they launched iPods, um and that saved their business in a lot of ways, but then they shifted those iPods from hard drives, which are kind of crappy for what they were, people were using them for because they had moving parts and that when the hard drive heads crash into the discs, things go bad. Yeah. It's actually kind of crazy to think that people walked around with a tiny hard drive in their pocket and like jogged with it, you know, yeah. Yeah. The amount of jostling that those hard drives went through is like kind of, uh, it's terrifying to think about now. 
it's amazing any of them survived. Yeah, um, right. which which is why when they switched to flash memory with the iPod Nano, it made a lot of sense. But you went from a product that could hold, you know, I think what Steve held up the first iPod was like a thousand songs in your pocket, and then the Nano came out and it was like eh, you could fit a few hundred songs in your pocket, which is yeah. more than enough. But it's a it's a step back. Usually the numbers go up. Yeah. Um. But but the thing about uh the iPod launching the Nano is that they by creating a product that increased demand for flash memory dramatically, they increased the world supply of flash memory. Because like what was what was using flash memory prior to the iPod? Can you even think uh, of SD cards? Like SD, cards okay, for yeah, cameras. So like digital cameras. flash cards, SD yeah. cards. Yeah. Um there were some MP3 players that used flash cards ah, as well. The, yes. The the Diamond Rio. Um yeah, Rather than yeah, Will yeah, Tech Pod's favorite <laughs> Official pocket MP3 player, the Diamond Rio. Do you remember that that thing used a, a parallel port? You plugged it Did into it really? a parallel port. It had a really I, weird connector, and you plugged it into the parallel port because everything else was too slow. I'm pretty sure I've, I've mentioned that I have one of those in a drawer somewhere that someone I know gave me at their garage sale, and I don't think they gave me a cable with it, so I don't know that I'll ever I, have, I have the cable. We can get ours together. We have an MP3 player party. If Fantastic. You want. All right. Great. Um, but anyway, so so the world supply of flash memory was relatively small at that point. People were using for digital cameras digital photo frames, stuff like that. Uh, embedded systems was where a lot of flash memory used to go. But was like, you know, that means uh, things like car computers and stereos and things like that. Things that you maybe don't think have a computer, but do. And um, as a result, the world supply of flash memory really skyrocketed because the iPod Nano, they sold a million units in 17 days. And, and that meant that the people that make flash memory suddenly built bigger, were able to build bigger factories because there was more demand for their product and, and they needed to make more. Um, and if you, if you extrapolate that stuff out, it's complicated with flash memory because a lot of stuff was using flash memory. But there's a really good example um, that I use in a talk that I used to do about uh, accelerometers. So uh, you know the iPhone, uh, I guess the first one, they all, they've always had an accelerometer but in the early days, it was a standalone like device. It wasn't even an integrated circuit. It was just a thing on the on the on the board. It was packed that, in there. Yeah, and it was just an accelerometer, no gyroscope. So you would accelerometers can tell um, when something's moving relative to its previous position, but they can't tell orientation with relation to gravity. So if you have an accelerometer and a gyroscope, then you can tell like where the center of the Earth is, the direction toward the center of the Earth. And the, the 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 translational movement of the object, so orientation and and movement. Uh, they added one of those in the iPhone 10. Sorry, the iPhone the iPhone 4 in 2010. Uh, prior to that, IMUs, you know, a chip that would that would tell you they have a gyroscope and an accelerometer cost, I think, six bucks in 2006. That's uh, sorry, okay. three three bucks, quantities of thousand. You could buy a chip. An IMU chip for about three dollars, so it was an IMU's, expensive item. Was that inertial measuring um, unit or something like that? Yeah, inertial inertial measurement unit. I think is the, what the M stands for. The I is inertial. The U is unit. I don't know what the M is for, but they they sold those for three bucks each, which in like in motherboard and phone terms is phenomenally expensive. Right when, when you're talking to ASUS and they're like, "Well, we could put a USB C port on this motherboard, but it's going to cost us an extra tenth of a cent." They have to really think about that. Right, like that's yep. a serious business decision. That's a digress too much, but uh, is ASUS the official pronunciation of that company on this podcast? I have been told by the representatives of ASUS over the years that the company's name is ASUS. Yeah, I mean, I've heard that for years as well, but it just is so hard to get my head around. It's Ubisoft. Uh, Ubisoft. Ubisoft. 
Ubisoft. <laughs> Ubisoft is the name of our insider UB News podcast. Yep. Um. Uh. Yeah. Ubisoft Asus Acer. I I think that they changed it to Asus from Asus to get away from Acer. Aha. Uh-huh. When that split okay. happened, that would make yeah. sense. Every everything is down to marketing. I don't know if that's true, but that's the thing I always heard. Um. So yeah. So IMU chips. Uh, three bucks in cost of a, in, in units of a thousand in in two thousand six. The iPhone has an accelerometer in 2007 when it launches. In 2010, the iPhone 4 added the IMU chip. The price went down. That drove the the worldwide price for anybody, not just Apple. Like if I go to an IC store and I'm like, hey, I need a thousand IMU chips, it then cost me 65 cents a unit, which is still expensive in that world, but not that bad. And now they're just built into this the system on the chips that you buy with everything. Like you pay nothing. They're smaller. They use less power. They're better across the board. And those IMU chips being like trending toward costing nothing, basically have en- enabled a ton of other technology that sprung up around them that is based on low cost or free IMU chips, like drones. This is how progress is made. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you look at if you look at hey, how do you get to a point that IMU chips are going to be cheap enough for me to put in like a kid's toy? Or, um, or, or you know, put fifteen of them in a drone, or put them in a three D printer, or whatever, wherever, wherever there are weird places you find it used to to measure movement. Uh, you can look and see what people are jamming into phones and devices that they're going to sell a literal billion of, and and see what's coming next by extrapolating what people are going to use that new technology for when it gets cheap. So, if you're a company the size and influence of Apple, like you're not when you set out to. Uh, to a concept an entire new product line like say the iphone or whatever like you're not it's not necessarily just a process of looking what's already available on the market in quantity to work with but also what you like what forces you can kind of manipulate to bring about new supplies that you don't already have access to right i think that's the difference between companies that are really successful at at you know if you think about the iPhone, it was a product that seemed like magic, right? It was a thing that, like, compared to a Windows mobile phone or a BlackBerry at the time, having a real web browser and having enough storage to put to actually use it as a small computer was a real turn. And that was because they had they had done the things to get to the point that they could afford to sell that device for six hundred bucks with, I think, eight gigs of flash memory. It wasn't very much. It was a yeah. tiny amount of flash memory at the time. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm part of like the cult of Steve Jobs or anything, but like I, I think that the original you remember the original iPhone stage announcement. Like I think that is maybe the only product announcement I've ever gone back multiple times on YouTube and watched. It, I mean, it's the, astounding just yeah. for the just for the entertainment value. Like the I mean, you remember the whole like the stagecraft of like we're announcing we're not announcing one product today. We're announcing three. It's like a yeah. What was it like an internet communicator, a, a brand new iPod, and like a something else and a web called? browser. For and a phone or something a like phone. that. Yeah, phone, a phone, yeah, like, phone, a web browser, and a and a and a MP3 player. And then, of course, the Magic Jobs moment of that's ah, not three products; it's one. Here it is, and it fits um, in your pocket. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That that thing that thing was insane. Like I remember, uh, we didn't. And by we, I mean the people I was working with uh, at the time. None of us got phones, iPhones, until the next year for the the 3G. Okay. Um, Which was the right choice, just to be clear. The first gen yeah, one was abandoned totally. really fast. Like totally. it was. Yeah. Anyway. But I distinctly remember because it came out um, early June, I want to say. It came out like a week or two before E3 that year. Mm -hmm. And we all went and got iPhone 3Gs right before E3. Oh, no. And all of us were completely losing our minds for the entirety of E3 because like, like, I mean, that's like a 
Uh, I mean, I don't want to say it's like a high pressure environment, but that's a, that a trade show is an environment where like you need to navigate a lot. You need to look things up a lot. You know what I mean? It's, and suddenly having this thing at your fingertips at just the moment that you need to access all this information while you're out in the world was like, like that was, that was a, the future is here moment. Like I maybe have never had before. It was one of those moments because, because it's funny that same E3 is the one that while getting out of the parking garage, out of the car in the parking garage at SFO, my, my, OG iPhone, my launch iPhone fell out of my pocket and the screen broke. Oof. And I couldn't, un- I couldn't, sw- like, I could swipe 90% of the way across <laughs> to unlock it, but it wouldn't get the last two pixels. You didn't want to lacerate and, your finger just to get it done. Well, and it was the first time I'd ever gone to a trade show without like a massive, like, usually you would, in the old days, you would print your appointment schedule. So I'd have yep. all my appointments printed. Yep. So I knew where I needed to be and when. And I didn't do that that year for the first time. I was like, well, I'm just fucked. So I went to a, an AT&T store when I got there and bought a BlackBerry because <laughs> I could hook it into our Outlook system at work and like get my get my calendar. Yeah. But it was it was um, like th- that that moment, the first moment that you go there and you're like, oh, I don't have to take my laptop out for every computing task that I need was a really, really big deal. And and it happened because Apple started making color iPods. So they got LCD production screen and the pixel densities they wanted up. They did flash memory on the nanos and the shuffles, and they sold bazillions of those. So they got the capacity for flash memory up and built relationships with Samsung and the other people that were making flash memory for them at the time. And and you know it it carries forward into things like you know barometric pressure sensors, which are in all of our phones now. Nobody knows, and uh, air quality sensors, which are in a bunch of Android phones now. Uh, I think even the iPhone 10 Plus has an air quality se- a, a PPM sensor. Um, and th- and that empowers things like like now you can buy a weather station for for like two hundred bucks that connects to Bluetooth and you put in your backyard inside your house and it tells you how much particulates in the air what your carbon monoxide uh, percentages are um, how much light the thing gets uh, what the temperature is what the relative humidity is uh, wind all of these things and all of these things happen because like these 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 things are on phones all these chips yeah. are on phones so that tech has all matured through economy of scale when are we going to get a geiger counter in our iphone that's uh, so there's a company called safecast <laughs> that's run by expecting a serious answer to this oh yeah so they uh this these folks named safecast i think it's run by sean bonner who is um he's an ex he's a like an early blog guy um he did la uh, I want to say Gothamist and LAist were were part of his network, but it may I may be thinking of a different one. Anyway, it doesn't matter. He has a company called Safecast, and they build they're they're like the size of a Walkman, like they're boxes that are about the size of an old school like cassette player Walkman. Okay. And so, like for somebody who's under forty, um, I don't know. It's like <laughs> wait, is that where we're four at? inches? Yeah, we got to explain this shit. I had explained the TV used to only have four channels to my daughter the other day, and she yeah, just didn't believe it. She was like, that's a lie, Dad. You're messing with me. <laughs> um, it's like four inches by six inches, probably, and yeah, it's in sure. a waterproof container, like a translucent waterproof container. It has inputs for um, air quality intake, and then it also has like radiation detectors for, I think, alpha, gamma. It's it's two of the three types of radiation, because one of them doesn't matter. I think it's it's... Alpha is helium particles. Beta is, I can't, I, 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 anyway, I don't remember. But the point is, it measures the two types of bad radiation and they set them up all over, and they work in a mesh network or with cell radios. So they set them up all around Fukushima um, oh, wow. after okay. the, after the nuclear reactor melted down there. 
and they use them to to like get a really good hyper local representation of air quality, uh, temperature, radiation, stuff like that. Um, for whatever you can, you can go to their site and see that they they the data is public. You can go see the data, and they have sensors set up all over LA and I think Northern California now too. So what you're what um, you're saying is not only does the tech exist, but it may actually work its way into a phone at some point. I don't I don't know if it'll work its way into a phone, but it, yeah, it's it's like it's it's there, and you can like their their whole there. It's a citizen science thing, so they uh, sell kits that you can build one and put it on your. Like you can plug it into your wall and and have a station in your backyard, just like you would have a weather station. I'm, I'm, like, I'm just looking like forward that. to Apple's uh, skeuomorphic interpretation of that creepy clicky sound they make. <sighs> we'll see. It's yeah, just gonna it's gonna be a haptic bump every time you do it. Yep. Bump, I mean, remember bump, we're bump, in, we're bump. in the bad future, so this is inevitable. We deserve the future we've gotten. No. Um. So so like I was gonna say just to expand on what we were talking about earlier. I mean, like when you talk about like somebody like a Tim Cook being really good at supply chain. And then the way you've the way you've reframed this for me, where you're saying it's not just about when you're designing a new product, looking at what you already have to work with, but making bets on creating enough market demand to create the supply that you're going to need. Like th- that's that's where there are enough. Like you're making enough gambles and placing enough bets that I can start to see why, you, you know, people that are really yeah. good at solving this equation without all the pieces already on the board are are kind of as respected as they are. Does that make sense? Well, so there's a, there's a, there's some more classic examples. Yeah, that, I mean that makes perfect sense. Google did the same thing with Gmail. Remember in in on April Fool's Day in 2003 when Apple when Google was like, "Hey, we're doing a Google Moon base, and also you can have a thousand gigabytes of storage in your yeah. email. Sign up for a beta invite today." Yeah, it seemed so. Like, didn't didn't they have it set up so that you could like look at the uh, the offer page and watch the number go up in real time? You, yeah, it used it used to be on the bottom of the page of your Gmail. I don't know if it's still there. I don't know if Gmail has a bottom anymore. Yeah, it does. Um, oh no, now it tells you how much space you have because I'm paying for two terabytes of storage. So yeah, and I, I think they've they've locked it now. But like it was, if I remember correctly, they had it set up like that, and that's like a stroke of marketing genius, you know, to say like, hey, you get a thousand gig or whatever, and then you can watch the number like slowly climb as you're signing up for the service. Well, so they did that because somebody somebody at Google was like looking at how many hard drives they were buying, and they were like, oh. We're buying a boatload of hard drives every year, but the cost per gigabyte or yeah, probably per megabyte at the time, but I guess per gigabyte cost per gigabyte at the time was, was like doing one of those like hard down into the right curves. It was like, it was like, it was, it had reached the point where it was going off the cliff and was just trending towards zero. And they were like, look, we have, we have to buy all these hard drives for the servers. We can't buy you know, 100, 150 megabyte hard drives, which is all the the Google, you know, the compute servers need and stuff like that. So we have all this Slack space. We can use that for other stuff. And they figured out how to kind of partition it off and use it for other things. Um, and, and then they were like, look, we can, if we want to get people to sign up for our accounts, because remember at the time before Gmail, who had a Google account? You didn't, you didn't need a Google account. Search yeah. wasn't personalized. Sure. You just logged in and everybody got the same research results everybody else did. God, I feel like such a dupe now. I mean, yeah, we, look, we traded, we let uh, arbitrary people run code on our computers in exchange for hot takes. That was a bad decision. <laughs> uh-huh. And we traded all of our personally identifiable information for uh, G- uh, email with pretty good spam filters and a gigabyte of storage. Yeah, and, and some cloud storage that we never really yeah. used. Yeah, and then the ability to share photos with our family and friends and people we went to high school with, we traded for uh, Western democracy. So, oh, you know, man. pros and cons. Bad future. Yeah, you got to. Yeah, bad future, bad future. Yeah. Um, 
but I mean, the same thing's happening now with compute, right? So the rise of GPU computing and as we see like quantum stuff coming online, which is a little further out, but is, is going to change things dramatically. Wait, is like that actually cost- happening? Hmm? Is quantum computing that, actually real. happening? It's a real I mean, thing. I, I know it's I know it's been in research or it's been under or in, in a research phase for a very long time. But my understanding was like we weren't going to see anything practical executed with it in our lifetimes or like it just seemed like kind of a lot of uh, wishful thinking, let's say. It, it has in the last five years, it's gone from a do you, are you familiar with the idea of like five years off technology being not really five years off? Like no. you always hear about uh, like uh, we, we talked about a little bit with um I think monitor stuff like OLEDs for a long time were a five years off technology. And then it took 15 years for them oh, to actually yeah, become yeah, yeah, a market sure. a thing yes. that you see in the market and can buy. Yep. Uh, it's like mainly because they required different manufacturing. Like the people had to build factories in order to build OLED panels and stuff like that. So when somebody has to figure out how to make something, how to build something, it go, it's not a five years off technology, if you're, especially if you're talking about building it at scale. Quantum computers, they're doing like, there are now people running quantum computers that are doing computations that are impossible, unwieldy to impossible on a normal computer. They're maybe not practical computations. Yeah, I didn't realize there were any even existing, like extant and doing work right now. I thought that like, I thought that the sort of the, the computational model was like existed theoretically, but that they hadn't actually built any yet. Or maybe I was... They're not doing practical work. They're doing theoretical work still. Okay. But they exist. Okay. Huh. Yeah, right. Also, holographic storage cubes. That's a whole different problem. Well, you know, <laughs> your, your, your NAND flash in your, in your uh, new Intel SSDs is three-dimensional, so it's multiple okay. layers. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. It's not a hollow cube, though. No. Um, but yeah, so, so com- the same thing's happening with compute, which is why like, when you upload your photos to Google Photos, It'll look at the photos and it's like, okay, these 20,000 pictures are of babies and these 18,000 pictures are of dogs and these 240,000 uh, pictures are of your every meal you've eaten for the last 20 years. Right. So, um, and they can do all that because the cost of compute is basically trending toward, toward zero now. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, uh, I guess that's another good example of like the popularity of iPhones and Android phones or smartphones, I should say. Yeah pushing arm and pushing mobile processors and then those that stuff is trickling down into like raspberry pies and other non non like consumer focused products i mean the, the pie i guess is kind of consumer focused but like that stuff is a little more hobbyist a little more enthusiast uh but you're like you're, you're getting access to a lot more uh horsepower in places that you didn't have it before for for super cheap for yeah for what is a raspberry pi for the loaded one is like 50 bucks i think right and it's right. probably better than any computer i had until maybe 10 years ago totally yeah 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 um there was a moment i think around the time we started tested when i looked at my iphone specs and i thought about like the computer that i had when i first moved to california in 2000 and the iPhone 4 had a higher resolution screen, a faster CPU, more memory, more storage, and a faster wireless internet connection to the cell network yeah. than I was getting you know, with a wired DSL desktop PC with a spinning platter hard drive that, you know, was like this. It was the size of a desktop PC. It was a big fucking computer. Yeah. And I was carrying this thing around in my pocket and complaining that it was too slow to play Peggle on or whatever. <laughs> I, you know, so, something, 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 iPhone, Apollo 11 guidance computer, you know? Like yeah, it's, exactly. It's just kind of the way of things. But, but okay, so there's more examples. Like Tesla, what Tesla did with batteries uh, is another one, right? They, 
they started out selling the Roadster based on somebody else's chassis, basically, and they just built motors and batteries until they had enough, um, until that that was able to drive enough market that they then could start selling the expensive sedan to rich people, and that let them build battery manufacturing capacity up. And all of that stuff took time because they had to like they're literally ten years ago when Tesla started, there was not enough. Um, manufacturing capacity in the world for lithium-ion batteries to fulfill the demand of the Model 3 right now, or the Chevy Bolt, or whatever ex- other example you want to use of somebody using lithium-ion batteries. That, that's the stuff where, I mean, granted, I'm not like the um, chief product officer of any giant corporations or anything, but like that seems like completely terrifying to have to make to place bets like that. I mean, I feel like almost a sense of vertigo thinking about being the guy who is like staking the future of a multi-billion dollar company on like, let's hope these supply chains come online at just the right time to like, well, but I, I mean, I don't think there's a hope. ships on this product. Well, yeah, I guess you've got like a lot of good intelligence coming in about like where things are going and what's ramping up and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, and like there, this is like, like I said, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. Um, you know, uh, Tim Cook goes to Samsung and says, "Hey, we we we're, we're going to want 200 times the amount of flash memory that you make right now. We want to buy that 10 years from now, right? right? So if they do that in 1999, thinking about an iPhone launch in 2007, I mean, uh, clearly Apple w- was betting the company on the iPhone launch. We know that, yeah. Given you know kind of how things were going for them before that stuff, but he, you know they they're they're letting samsung know because it takes years to build those factories and build those facilities to bring that stuff online and and you know memory is just sand plus a little bit of metal right at the end of the day but but it's still like the it's all all of the stuff that turns that sand and the and the metal the trace amounts of metal into something useful is billions of dollars of infrastructure and it yeah. takes time to build that stuff so like the the manufacturing people will say look if you have a lathe you can build anything, right? Like all of the modern tools start with one. A lathe is just a thing that spins and has a blade on it. Basically, yeah. you can make you can make screws, you can make wedges, you can make all this other stuff. You can make up with a lathe. You can make the gears to make a mill, right? And then with the mill, you make a blah blah blah, and on down the line through the tech tree until we get to you know, memory <laughs> manufacturing plants. Yeah, but but it's a figuring out where the wedges are and that stuff is is the challenge of our time for the smart people. So uh, I know I've said in the past that I, I'm trying my best not to make this an Apple-centric podcast, but they, I just I, I feel like they typify a lot of the subjects that we're trying to talk about. Well, and and in in a lot of ways, Android the Android manufacturers literally drafted on what they did. Oh, totally. Like they, yeah. they they provided a quantum leap, and then it took two or three years for anybody else to kind of catch up. Yeah. For I mean, we saw Android phones before that, but they weren't good until 2011, really. Right. Right. So I mean, like you mentioning Apple getting a lot of uh, their memory from Samsung. And I know that I want to say they were getting screens from them too for quite a while. Like that's an interesting example of like on, on their faces, those companies are like direct and like kind of heated competitors. Right. But on the back end, like one of them is relying on the other for some like crucial parts that are coming in. But, and like Apple seems like a, a, maybe an edge case where they are trying to bring more and more of their supply chain in house where they presumably want to be making more, if not all of the parts that go into their stuff. Um, I, I, they're definitely designing that stuff. I mean, whether they're making it, I don't, I don't know who does the manufacturing for the A series of, of SOCs that goes into iPhones and iPads. And yeah, I mean, I guess they they probably don't own their own chip foundries yet or anything crazy like that, but like they do design their CPUs in house, you know? Yeah. So that, that was a direct response to them not getting the things that they wanted out of the stock 
arm. So, so uh, something people probably don't know, this is a little off topic, but um, arm SOCs, system on a chips arm provides a set of instructions that it licenses. And then like um, Qualcomm and Samsung and Apple and a bunch of other companies take those instructions and then figure out what the other bits that go into the SOC are that they want. So like, Apple's going to put a big GPU on there and they're going to put some dedicated machine learning stuff, like math units that do specific types of math that are used in machine learning. They're going to do probably an IMU. They're going to put a compass and and sometimes that stuff is on the chipset, which is other chips on the board. Sometimes it's just embedded directly in the the CPU. Um, And a lot of those decisions are made based on like how often it's used. Like if it's going to be used constantly they do, Apple puts a lot of, and, and Samsung and everybody else puts a lot of the stuff that's used constantly, but at very low power on a separate chip. Because it's easier to do that than it is to just figure out how to clock down one individual bit of the ARM CPU. A- anyway, Apple did the, brought the design in-house because nobody was making stuff exactly the way they wanted it. And they wanted lots of GPU, and they wanted lots of... Um, they wanted lots of specific stuff so that the phone behaved in the way that they wanted it to because of choices they made with the OS. Maybe, I don't know if this is kind of a digression, but can they ever own the uh, design for those CPUs outright, or are they always going to have to pay licensing fees to ARM? Like, can they can they buy, like, just the design of each chip? Huh. I don't know how that stuff works on the licensing side. That's a good question. Yeah, because, like, I, I heard the same story back in the day about, um, there's a, game consoles are, are a, a hotbed of weird supply chain issues. Like, going back to, let's see... Like, I want to say it was the 360 where when you bought the hard drive, you were also, because I think you didn't get backwards compatibility on a 360 unless you... You had to have the hard drive. Yeah. Bought the hard drive. Because the right? Xbox One had a, had a spinning disk and the Xbox 360 didn't by default. Well, there was some, there was something, um, I, I, I remember hearing the stories where they were, they, they were having to pay licensing fees to NVIDIA and they were basically bundling those in with accessories with the hard drive instead of, like, you know, they were, they were cutting costs on the core console. Oh, that's, why those hard, the hard drive. that's why those hard drives were so expensive. Right. So like I, huh. I've I've heard stories for years about like companies owning the IP for their CPU design or not and having to pay license fees over time. I I thought the Invi- I, th- I don't know the specifics. I never read that book about the original the original Xbox One. But my understanding was that Nvidia had chipset licenses. Yeah, because the Xbox One was an Intel x86 CPU. But it was yes. that Northbridge. Oh, you're, wait, you're you're talking about the OG Xbox. I'm talking about the yeah the 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 Seamus Blackley <laughs> Xbox, not the not, not, not the, the Allard one, not the product called the Xbox. Not one. the one, the, the Xbox with the number one, not ONE. Um, yes. Yeah. So Nvidia had a Northbridge chipset that did, like, it did the Dolby Digital. It did the okay, d- sure. direct sound to Dolby Digital and all that stuff. And I thought that's what they licensed because the CPU. And, and that may be right. And it was a like a GeForce. Two maybe MX three. It was a, th- it three? Was a three. Yeah, yeah. Because it had it had the um, transform and lighting. What was? Uh, well, no, it was more than that. What was the the big DX eight uh, edition? Was it? It wasn't pixel shaders, was it? Um, it was light pixel shaders because you do normal maps and normal maps and button maps and stuff like that. Diffusion maps. Yeah, I thought. Yeah, because there were games on the Xbox that did stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, you know they they put out Doom three for that thing. Wow, really? Oh yeah, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so so like the weird the weird licensing stuff ties into that for sure. Like people definitely try to like Microsoft didn't include a Fraunhofer license for MP3 playback for years and years and years because like you had to buy a you had to buy I can't remember you had to buy some like weird one off program to do that. The same thing is happening now with HEIC, the new Apple um, you know Apple's higher efficiency 
photo uh, compression format. It does video and stuff too. You have to buy a separate license for that um, or H.264 playback or whatever. I mean, a lot of the stuff ends up getting integrated eventually, but... Or like Blu-ray playback on computers is a big one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, I mean, you didn't get HD... They didn't... The reason that there wasn't an HD DVD player in the Xbox 360 is probably because Microsoft didn't want to pay the HD HD DVD consortium's fees unless people were actually going to watch the discs. So they bundle the fees in with the drive, and and then that stuff works itself out. I mean, of course, it worked out for Sony because they put the Blu-ray disc in the PS3, and then everybody just like whether you played Blu-ray discs or not, you watch. Yeah, uh, Brad, would you say we uh, take a quick break and come back and talk about rare earths? Rare earths. Rare earths. That sounds scary, but okay. <laughs> Okay, well, I've got a question. I'm curious about something. It is kind of supply chain related. I guess we're probably getting a little bit into product design territory, but I mean, I guess the two are pretty intertwined, right? Because you've got to figure out what you've got to work with before you can decide what you build with. It's all connected, man. That's right. Follow the threads. Beautiful tapestry of uh, uh, endless consumer technology. As far as the eye can see. I'm curious, and this is something I'm sure you probably have not gotten a close-up look at, because I would imagine a lot of it is like closely guarded trade secrets, but uh, I'm really curious what the early stages of building products with all this stuff look like in terms of getting stuff into a lab, uh, kind of rapidly prototyping things, like building potential enclosures, you know, like what, what, do the, what do the tools look like in a design lab at a major company making consumer tech? Um, you're right that I haven't seen a lot of this stuff in person, because it's all like the ability to to make one of these spaces safe for say a journalist or just a normal civilian to come in and look around without seeing billions of dollars of IP is is challenging. Right, it's not like they're doing a lot of walkthroughs of Johnny Ives design lab or anything yeah. for for Wired or something like that. I well they I feel like they've let a couple a handful of journalists into these design labs at different times. There was a Vanity Fair article about Johnny Ives a few years ago that had a little bit of detail about how that stuff worked. Um there have been some there have been some wired pieces, not necessarily about apples, but um, a lot of times what they'll do. I, so I don't know how they do when they're doing a new product category, like when the iPhone when they were working on the iPhone. I know I mean we've all seen the articles about the four different iPhone prototypes and how, or seven different iPhone prototypes or twelve different. You know, depending on who you ask, how they figured out that that form factor and that screen ratio and that size and the button on the bottom and the volume buttons on the sides were, were the right approach um when they're iterating what they'll do is often they'll, there'll be two kind of parallel development paths one will be the physical form factor changes where they'll put the old hardware into a new shell so they can like use it as they would a regular phone so if like this is not a real example but if they're going to make the back faceted glass and they want to see how that change affects people's ability to hold the phone put it in their pockets and you know stick it on the dashboard of their car and stick it in the sleeve on their on their uh messenger bag and all the different places that people put phones then they'll build with like cnc machining tools out of delrin or glass or whatever you know some sort of plastic or styrofoam even in some cases um they'll build mock-ups and then then use those or they'll build um, I, I want to say with the iPhone 4, the one that Gizmodo bought that the guy left in the bar, they had a case on it that made it look and feel like an iPhone 3 
Yep, that's right. But it had the iPhone 4 guts inside. So they do where that works on both sides, both from the aesthetic side, they'll make a fake mock-up and on the on the actual like guts and hardware side, they'll disguise that as another device. I I feel like they maybe don't do that stuff as much as they used to anymore because people are a little less crazy about trying to get the hot scoops as they as they were 10 years ago. Sure. Um but yeah, a lot of them like those labs are maker play spaces, right? There's right. There's all sorts of cool like you put a big slab of plastic in because like apple's r&d budget is infinite for all intents and purposes you know the people who work in there aren't worried about spending a three thousand dollar piece of delrin to like carving out all of that to make a fake iphone they just do it um i'm sure somebody cares but my understanding is that Johnny I was just like throwing <laughs> throwing money in the air like Homer Simpson in the land it's, of chocolate. It's, yeah, I was gonna, it's, it's, it's basically the Mr. Burns Thanksgiving dinner, right? Yeah. Like he thousands of dollars worth of food on the banquet table and he takes one sip of the soup and then <laughs> dispose of all this. You <laughs> could release the hounds. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, like, I feel like uh, my guess is that somebody above the design lab says, okay, here's what we have to work with. We have a CPU that has this capability and it, it's going to have these chips on it. And it's going to have these sensors. And then they take that and they say, come up with 15 different ways to fit this in your pocket. Right. And at the same time, the software people are looking at the, the new capabilities that are going to come online and saying, okay, we have a higher contrast screen and we have an air quality sensor and we have um, a motion sensor that, that tracks, you know, tracks your relative movement 3000 times a minute or whatever, you know, whatever the numbers are. And then they figure out what's going on. And the the thing that Apple has consistently done well, and the thing that now Google is doing with their Pixel line, um, is that they're they work well. Those two sides are working closely together, rather than just saying, "Hey, here's the CPUs that we have available, and why don't you go write some software that's just generic for those?" You end up with a better result, it seems like. And I think I think, like I said, what Google's done with the Pixel, even what Samsung's doing with their phones, has has proven that out when, when those sides are working yeah. closely together. Yeah, the, the reason I was curious about that is that it's it's easy for me to envision how something gets made out of aluminum and glass and you know all these kind of high end industrial materials when when I envision a product like a like a manufacturing line full of robotic arms like all automatically doing things like it's easy to see how a product with that kind of precision comes out of that environment but obviously you don't tool those lines up until you've got a final design so until they get to that step I'm just sitting here going like somebody sitting there with sandpaper and I mean I'm sure it's a lot, a lot more high tech than that no the, yeah they they have like high end CNC mills and stuff like that that do yeah. those do those things exactly yeah. so it's it, like the tools are there it's just they're not they're it's the difference between like building a car on an assembly line versus that guy who 3D printed his kid a Lamborghini I don't know if you saw that one what? Oh. Yeah, so some guy took a other car chassis and then 3D printed body panels for a Lamborghini, and it looks like a 3D printed Lamborghini made out of pieces <laughs> that are like I don't know, maybe 12 inches by 14 inches or something. Is that street legal? I can't imagine. Look, there's a lot of bad oh. ideas happening there, but also it's very cool. So what you know, you know, plastic's cheap, right? That's that's another great uh, aspect of the bad future. The uh ability to execute on bad ideas is almost limitless well and and just to be clear all of this stuff happened like when we built the first 3d printer that we built it tested in 2010 those stepper motors were hella expensive and now because people are using steppers and all the cnc stuff it's not just you know high-end cnc mills that would be in an apple r&d lab like anybody can buy a cheap cnc mill to carve circuit boards at home for like 1500 now or grand uh 3d printers have driven a lot of that stuff down even though they're not massively successful like we have home laser cutters and we have home um the cricket 
uh, is a great example. The vinyl, vinyl cutter is the most popular CNC device ever made because those things are in thousands and hundreds of thousands of people's homes for like scrapbooking stuff for craft stuff. And, and like the stepper motors in those are, and are what, what makes those things work. It's, it's really, yeah, 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 yeah. The, the, the tendency of high end and like exotic tech like that to trickle down into really cheap products uh, just seems to be like the defining story of consumer tech in this era. It kind of is. It's a little bit disconcerting though, because it means that like somebody, I saw somebody complaining the other day that their mom just, instead of buying refills for her printer, just goes and buys a new printer and throws the old one in the trash every time. Cause it's yeah. cheaper. Yeah. Um, and, and like, that's, that's the real concern because like we use a lot of things uh, that are not, they're not exactly scarce. Like uh, rare earth minerals are a good example of this. Um, so rare earths are, I think, uh, lanthanides. It's the, if you look at the periodic table, you know, there's the two spikes on either side. Mm-hmm. I think the rare earths are the top row of the wide skinny part. Like, so it's like, it's like the third column and then the first, first row on the long part. And it's, it's, uh, it's stuff like cerium and erybium and europium and, uh, neodymium, neodymium, sorry, and thulium and terbium and lethanum. And it's all these, it's thorium and, uh, oh uh, yeah, they're found in, 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 uh, deposits of like thorium and uranium do you have a do you have a good sense of what exactly those roles those those elements or what roles those elements play in a given device like you hear you hear about them all the time but i don't know if it's like if it's, that stuff is going to in the batteries i would assume not but i don't know what else they would do on like a circuit board so it's um it's a lot of battery stuff my understanding is that they have uh weird unusual electrical properties in lots of cases um, sometimes magnetic properties and that's what they're used. That's why they're used specifically, but I, I don't, that, that chemistry is beyond me. It's, that's, it's uh scary. The, the, yeah. the thing about those rare earths specifically, like they're called rare earths. They're not, they're not particularly rare. Like there's lots of places you can get them. There's only a few places where it's relatively inexpensive to mine them is my understanding. One of them is in China. Yeah. Um, and like they they don't get recycled as a general rule because there's very small quantities in most consumer electronics, so those parts just go in the in the landfill, and our grandchildren will be mining them out in in fifty years. So that is maybe one of the most cyberpunk things I've ever heard is the idea. It's the picture of children sifting through like junk piles through through the garbage dump. Well, I don't think they'll be children, phones. Brad. <laughs> I think they'll just be our like you know my my grandchildren in fifty years will be. 20 years old, 25 years old. Yeah. So I mean, when, when the bad future becomes the worst future, everybody is going to be <sighs> scrabbling for, well, but I mean, if you think about get. the amount of copper, for example, that was thrown out in landfills in the fifties, it's probably worth yeah. mining. Like there's probably parts of the world where it's worth going out and mining up the landfill to get the old copper out yeah. uh, from, from the forties and fifties. So, yeah. yeah. So I mean, the, the only reason that I'm really even aware of rare earth elements with regard to, consumer tech is just because access to them has become so politicized. Like you mentioned that a lot of them are concentrated in China and that sort of thing. Like I think it, it felt like some kind of Tom Clancy ass prediction for a while that there were going to be like rare earth wars over resources in the future at some point, but it seems like maybe it's not going to be that, that dire. Well, the, the, the situation is most of the world let uh, China do the mining because the mining is a little bit dirty is my understanding. Um, so we shut down our rare earth mines and then, Lithium ion batteries became very important and let them, uh, 
let's see, I think lanthanum and um, uh, neodymium specifically became really valuable because lanthanum is used at, lanthanum is used in battery electrodes, and neodymium is used in powerful magnets, which make motors work. Um, so, so yeah, you, you like we shut down those mines and now we're looking at ways to bring those mines back online without also okay. destroying the environment around the mines or doing new mines or, or whatever. It's, you know, it's kind of like, this is kind of like the, the, if fracking is the bad example of this rare earths are the good example of this, because if we can mine rare earths more efficiently and use them to make electric car motors and electric car batteries, then we can have a really, a local net negative probably for the area directly around the mine, but an overall net positive in terms of reducing carbon emissions for uh, electric cars and silicon panel, uh, 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 solar panels and stuff like that. Okay. So it's not, it's not like a small number of companies control the world's supply of those resources. It's more of just a, a question of making an investment. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's just like building the memory factory, right? You know, uh, Samsung Samsung built more memory factories because Apple was selling a lot of iPods. We're selling a lot of cars and uh, and electronics devices and lithium ion batteries and more people are investing in rare earths. It's look, some sometimes capitalism sucks, but sometimes it actually like stuff works out uh, kind of okay. Yep. I mean, uh, yeah. This the amoral hand of the market, right? Yeah. Yeah, let's we'll call um, it that. So, uh, so yeah, like e-waste is another topic that I thought about when we were discussing doing the show ahead of time. Um, I mean, like phones are the obvious example, right? Of like every phone maker on the planet is trying to drive an annual uh, adoption cycle. They've kind of slowed down on that, though. Well, I mean, they're still rolling them out pretty much annually, but like I, I could see it getting to the point where maybe that that goes away. Yeah. So, uh, um, iFixit talks about this. Kyle Ween's from iFixit talks about this a lot. Um, iFixit is a, is a repair release. And he says, as he says, like electronics recycling is the end of the supply chain. That's like the last step. So you, um, like if I don't know what you do with your old phones, most of mine live in a drawer in my, in my kitchen. I just reached into my desk drawer and pulled out. <laughs> I've got four phones here. Is that? Yeah. Uh, it's got a Windows phone, an iPhone 3G, an old variety. Let's see, what is this? An old LG flip phone, an Android phone, hand-me-down. They tend to pile up. Well, so so one of the things that's happened over the last few years is a lot of people are buying phones on the upgrade plan because the manufacturers are actively encouraging that. You know, Apple and and the phone carriers are giving you no cost financing for a thousand dollar phone over two year two years at like forty to sixty dollars a month, depending on what the phone costs and what your credit's like. Um, what, what, what you traded in. So at the end of that time, usually you hand the phone back to them and get the new model and you just keep paying the $40 a month. Um, the economics of that are maybe not ideal. Uh, paying $1,000 for a phone seems a little bananas. That seems a little more palatable, I think, to a lot of people than paying $1,000 for a phone. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think we're moving away from the annual. Like I'm still using an iPhone 10. I think I probably not. I thought I might upgrade, and I think I'm probably not going to. So it's a two year old phone, and it's it works great. So why would I upgrade? Yeah, I'm I'm on an iPhone 8, and like when I got it, I kind of took a hard look at it, and I was like, you know what? Like I'm happy with this as a device. I think I'm just going to try to use this until I don't know. I mean, I, I started to say until it stops working, but like these things are pretty robust, so it'll probably work for a long time. But like you know, I'm going to see if I can maybe get like let's say four or five years out of this phone instead of the one to two that has become traditional. Uh, but like that does lead to 
Do you think we're at billions of unused smartphones yet? Yeah, almost certainly. You think so? I mean, they sell. Apple has been known to sell a billion phones in a year in the past. Okay. So okay, so you think there um, are that many of those just lying around in drawers like this now? <laughs> Probably well, there have to be. So so um, there's there's two things to think about. One is the one is the how do you recycle them? And the rarest typically don't get recycled because there's not there's not enough of them in the devices to make it worth doing, or it's difficult to separate them in the case of the batteries, like separate the electrodes from the batteries in a safe way that doesn't make the battery explode and catch fire or whatever. Um, one of the things that Kyle and the iFixit folks always push for is to make the phones more repla- repairable. So um, if you think about if you think about your phone, the reason your phone gets slow often is that the batteries um, the battery becomes less capable of providing uh, uh, a surge current when the CPU demands it when the CPU spins up. So the CPU then has to run slower so it doesn't crash because it doesn't have enough power and and if you replace the if you take the old battery out send that off to be recycled put a new battery in the phone feels like it's brand new again and that's that's like there's no reason that most people couldn't use a phone longer than the 1500 charge cycle battery will let them use the phone um and apple has gotten better about doing that like now they do battery replacements in the shops it takes like 20 minutes instead of you know having to in the old days they would glue the batteries into the phones and like ungluing a battery from the back of a phone is terrifying because if you mess up at all, you're going to puncture and it's going to make a bunch of really dangerous white smoke and, you know, make you evacuate the building. So, so, you know, building the devices from the beginning, from the beginning of the design process to be replaceable, it turns out is, is a good thing and we should do more of it's easier than, than recycling the, 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 the devices themselves probably in a lot of cases yeah are, are you familiar with the fair phone have you seen, read about that thing much is this the the open source thing is this the uh, i don't think it's open source it's out of somewhere in europe i want to say it might be denmark or somewhere like that but um it is uh like the the tagline is the phone that cares for people and planet huh. the idea is basically a modular smartphone that you can kind of like like i think it literally comes with a toolkit uh, in the box that lets you take the phone apart you know battery screen uh, housing, like kind of just the the, the basic parts of a, a smartphone are made to come apart, and like it, I think it's supposed to be modular so you can upgrade specific components. Uh, is this time. a thing you can buy? Yeah, absolutely. It's not like I think they're on their third one. I think Fairphone Three is the newest one. Oh, this is really uh, cool. It runs Android, I assume. Yeah, it's yeah. an Android phone. It sounds like a little bit I've read about it. It's like you know moderately decent specs. Like you're not getting an absolute top of the line competitive uh, phone with like Samsung's offerings or anything like that. But it sounds like it's like good enough for a lot of people. But you can replace the camera when you want a better camera, and man, that's really cool. Yeah, it it really, and I think that you know there there are certain aspects of their supply chain where they talk about I think trying to get like conflict free minerals and, and source all their stuff ethically and that sort of thing. Hmm. But but also just for me, just from the old man, like the grouchy old man perspective of like everything's a black box now. You can't take things apart and fix them yourselves any, anymore. Like this feels like it's kind of an answer to that in some in some way like it's hard to see this becoming the norm i think most people like their phones to just be kind of disposable uh, well google had a thing a few years ago that was a modular design for android phones um that was more it was this is this is like the build your own pc version of this that theirs was more like snap some blocks together and then put a cover over them okay and you could add like specific sensors and stuff like that i don't think they've actually shipped them they might have really done a beta or something but um this is really neat. I want to look more into this. This is this is super cool. It's a cool idea, but like you know, it, it adds some bulk to the device. Like it's not as pretty as an iPhone, 
Uh, like it's 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 hard to see this really catching on as a mainstream thing, but it's it's cool that people are out there trying stuff like this. I mean, it doesn't look. It's not. It's like ten millimeters thick and and one hundred fifty eight millimeters. Yeah, I mean, this is this is this is competitive. I'm I'm into it. Do you think we're getting to a point? Um, I mean, that, this this kind of ties into what I was saying earlier about feeling like my current phone is kind of good enough for the foreseeable future. Like, do you feel like the tech on this type of product is is maturing or plateauing enough that like I don't know, maybe we are going to see more stuff like this because there's just not that much left to do with phones as they currently exist. I mean, I think I think we've definitely been at that point for a long time on phones. If you think when the iPhone Seven came out you were kind of looking at like that generation of phones. It was like, Oh, this is definitely better, but, and the camera's really nice, but I don't know that I'm need to like, this is we've reached a point where good enough is good enough for most people. And, and phones, you know, if you look at PCs, it took from the nineties when PCs kind of started getting mainstream until 2007 or 2008, maybe even 2010 before you kind of, it wasn't until really windows seven came out that you were like, I'm probably okay for a while. And now, like you can run, I know people who have Windows Seven computers that don't play games or or do video editing and stuff like that. Like they have a early quad core that started as a Windows Seven machine. It runs Windows Ten great, and and that computer will last them either until the spinning hard drives die, or they decide they they it's worth spending five hundred dollars and upgrading to something new. Right. So I, I think we're I think we're at that point with phones. I can't. If you'd asked me ten five years ago if I was going to have a phone for three years. I would have told you you're mad. Now I'm sitting here. I'm like, eh, I don't know if it's worth the two weeks of hassle to switch to a new phone at this point. Yeah. It's kind of nice to be in this place. You know, like it's kind of exhausting trying to keep up with these rapidly updating product cycles. Like it's, it's nice it, to just have a thing and have it work for, you know, kind of from now on. It's comforting to not have everything always in flux. It turns yeah. out. Uh, um, but spe- what speaking do you think of about things th- being in flux? Yeah. Um, I was one last question I was going to ask just like, I mean, you're not Tim Cook. You're not in there like looking God, at I wish I was. I mean, you're, you're, you don't have access to trade secrets is what I mean. Like in terms no. of uh, well, a few, just mine though, you know, part supply that may be spinning up, uh, on like snazzy new advanced tech, but like, do you, do you see anything happening right now that, uh, tickles your fancy, like in terms of where things might be going as, as certain things are becoming more like cheaper or, or more possible to do in terms of what's available? Um, I, I mean, the compute thing is huge. Kevin Kelly did a talk about this years ago at uh, XOXO that I was at that uh, was was really fascinating. And he was like, look, think about all of the things that are expensive for computers to do right now. And then think about what happens if that cost of doing that computation goes way down. And we're seeing it with image recognition now, right? Like it's, it's happening with the self-driving cars and stuff like that. All of that stuff is feeding into like computers getting better at image recognition is is making self-driving cars maybe a possibility it's unclear if that's actually going to happen or not you know people are a little bullish on it now or bearish bullish is good and bearish is bad right but yeah so i think that there's a couple of things coming that are going to be impossible for us to predict what's going to happen on the other side of i think the compute the quantum computing stuff is is a big one i think massive amounts of compute that are available very inexpensively in the cloud is 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 going to dramatically change the way the internet works. Maybe not in a good way. <laughs> seems like a safe um, bet at this point. Yeah. I mean, have you been in one of those Amazon shops yet? No. With the cameras I've in the ceiling? i people uh, posting some kind of uh, uh, on-the-scene reports of all the cameras in the ceiling and stuff like that, and it does not seem like an environment. There's one by your yeah, office. You should, think, go, you should go check I'm it good. out and do a report next good. week. Just walk in know. there. 
You don't have to buy anything. Just walk in and look around. See how it feels. All right. I'll think about it. Um, speaking of homework, we got some emails. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see. Do you want to talk about networking or food? Uh, let's start with the network. Okay. So James says, funnily enough, I've been working on a blog series similar to your podcast. Uh, I was talking about classful and classless IP networks. We talked about this and I didn't know the answer. Um, he says, classful IP address spaces are standardized blocks of addresses where the subnets are defined by the most significant bits of the addresses are ones. Define, yeah. When IP networks started expanding, they needed to chop the address space up into subnets in order to be able to sanely assign the right size blocks to fit the requirements of the organization that needed them. Early on, they just used lots of class A addresses. Um, but that means that most of the addresses in that block wouldn't get used. So if like your IP address was 1.1.x.x, then that means there's 256 times 256 IP addresses in there. And if you're only using 3,000, then there's like a couple of million that are a couple of hundred thousand that are just being wasted. So that, that stuff makes me realize why there are a lot of networking classes available. Courses, I should say, like educational courses, oh, yeah. like why there are certifications. Oh. Like you start, you start to understand why a lot of schooling is required. Well, it's the same as always as everything, right? Like the, 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 it's really easy to learn just enough to be dangerous, which is where I have lived my entire life. Mm -hmm. Um, yep. That's fun. Yeah. But to be an expert, you you gotta, you gotta spend some time. Um, so he says the class A, B and C addresses are the different subnets that are defined as private. So class A is 10.0.0.0 to with the subnet of eight. So that means it's, um, basically, you know, the 10.15, all of those private addresses are in that range. Uh, class B is 172.16.0.0 with a slash 12 subnet. So that's 255.250.0.0, which means that like part of the third range and the second and the first range are available. Um, and then class C is 192.168.0.0, and that is a 16 slash 16 subnet, which is 255.255.0.0. So what that means is 192.168.anything.anything are private, but 192.167.anything.anything are not private, right? I don't think I can do the math on the class B ones, what's private and what isn't, but on the class A, the 10.0.0.anything are private. I'll cut you some slack on that. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, and then he, there's it's a really long email. I'm not going to read the whole rest of this, but but the, I thought the ABC thing was interesting, um, and I did not I did not know that. Uh, let's see, we have one more we had one more good one here. Uh, Jared says, "Hey, you can cook rice in the Instant Pot." Oh, yeah. Um, he said, "If you cook rice on high pressure for about six minutes with a ten minute natural release, we didn't talk about natural versus quick releases at all." last week so i guess that would make a difference right because like the longer that the pressure remains high if it takes longer to let it out then then that's going to change the dynamics of the cooking while that's happening right that's yeah that's it's it's the difference between flipping the vent so that the air blasts the extra pressure blasts out really quickly in like a 30 seconds versus letting it cool down enough inside that the pressure goes down just because the temperature is reduced inside the pot yeah it seems like that 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 could pretty easily overcook your food if you're not careful uh, he said, don't ever use the rice cooker setting on the Instant Pot because you'll end up with a gummy stuck on mess, which oh, was precisely my experience. Um, and the benefit, of course, of using Instant Pot versus, say, a rice cooker is that every rice cooker I've ever seen has a Teflon pan, which Teflon is theoretically okay for you as long as it doesn't ever fl- flake off and get into your food. Oh, don't say that. Yeah, I know. 
I'm still trying to get over microplastics from last week. Look, microplastics are a, uh, just rest assured that your lymph nodes are full of microplastics and will be for the rest of your life. Microplastics are always with us. Yes. We'll always have microplastics. Thanks. All those thanks Axe, uh, or sorry, uh, Axe body scrub for your, uh, for your, for your contribution to the environment. I I I don't know if we talked about this in the podcast, but one of the things I love to think about are, like what are the going to be the geographic geological definers of our age? And the the I talked to an archaeologist once who was like, "There's two things maybe. Uh, one is microplastics. Like there's just going to be a sedimentary layer on on <laughs> our time that is like sure. ten feet thick, and it's there's just plastic fucking everywhere in it. The other one is chicken bones. Wow. So roaster chickens. We kill trillions of roaster chickens every year. Those, is it really that high? It's a phenomenal number of chickens, and like I knew, I knew it was a lot. I don't know if you saw this thing about Costco is actually spinning up their own uh, chicken farming. That's effort. What, finally, what is the? I'll take the third least, the third most dystopian sentence I've heard this week. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the 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 apparently, like I I probably should have realized this without being told, but the four ninety nine rotisserie chicken at Costco is a loss leader. That makes and sense. So, yeah, and so they are they are that intent on keeping that business going that they have finally opened like some like insane massive sprawling chicken farm in I think Nevada. How many chickens can we farm in a year as a as a I, species? I don't even want to think about it. Yeah. Uh, um I don't know. At the same time, are you ready to move to grasshopper? I've eaten grasshoppers before. Yeah, I have too. I mean, I'm not saying it's They're like crunchy. Terrible. Yeah. I've eaten worse things. You need to get you got to get protein somehow. I want to talk about I want to learn about um uh, fake meat now the beyond and have you had the have you had an impossible no, Whopper I, bread? I still haven't i haven't gotten around to trying it i mean i know it's out there i've seen it i, th- I think they, they have it at the grocery store now right like you can just get it kind of raw and ready to cook yeah you can get um like patties and ground beef and stuff like that for for beef stew and soups and spaghetti and stuff like that um it's good like i've, yeah. I've been there's a burger place by my house that does both impossible and beyond burgers and they're both they're both good like the texture is nice it tastes like real meat they don't warm up quite right so you gotta eat the whole thing in one sitting but but like i've if you put one of those in front of me i don't know that i'd be able to tell the difference between that and a regular real cheeseburger can you tell the difference between the two do you have a preference one over the other or are they pretty indistinguishable i like the impossible better um or at least where I've had it prepared. I haven't made it myself. The Beyond has a little bit of a, um, gets a little bit of a crustier outside when they put on a griddle or a grill or whatever. And I, I like, I like a little bit more of a tender burger than a crunchy burger. But like, if you like your smash burger, maybe, uh, maybe go with the Beyond. Definitely worth trying. And are those things, are those things ethical to produce? Do you have any idea? I guess that's, that's the thing to talk about, right? I mean, you're not, they're not, you're not killing an animal to make them. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. Like the net carbon contribution to the atmosphere, if that's the, and water usage is probably dramatically lower. Yeah. Like it's, it's hard to be worse than beef in terms of like environmental impact. (laughs) That is very fair. Like you could maybe go out and punch a couple of nuns or something. If you want (laughs) to, you, if you burn down some forest and then slaughter the cow, it's a little Uh, bit worse, I guess. Here I was worried we weren't going to come up with an episode title before the thing was over. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, so yes, yeah, so I guess that's it for us. I uh, we I feel like we should maybe start plugging what we're going to do next week at the end of these, yeah. but we haven't talked about that that yet. So yeah, we um, need to start planning what we're going to do next week before we can start talking about it. Yeah, that's probably a good idea. Yeah, um, we've gotten a lot of good feedback. Um, if you if you have specific like feedback about audio quality or stuff like that, I think we've made some big strides in the last couple of weeks on that. Yeah. 
um, so that we know the first few episodes were rough. But I think from definitely four on, and I think three was pretty good too, as I recall. I can't, I can't. It's all blending together now. Yeah. We'd love to hear what you think. We'd love to hear topics that you guys want to want want us to dig into. Um, yep. If there's things you would like, if you think there, if you have ideas for segments and stuff like that, we're into that as well. And um, as always, leave leave those reviews on iTunes because that helps. Like it turns out, getting good reviews on iTunes is the best way to get new people listening to a podcast. It, still in 2019, even even bad reviews. I'm you're not allowed to say don't leave. <laughs> only leave good reviews. That's frowned upon. No such thing as bad publicity. Uh, you can find us at Sweatpants Tech on Twitter. Uh, the email address is techpod at content.town. Or you can hit us individually on Twitter. I'm Will Smith. I am Brad Shoemaker. See you all next week. 